Hey guys, if you want updates on our latest episodes, then be sure to subscribe to the Film Colossus podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you'd like to support the show and hear episodes ad-free, then subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmcolossus. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we are talking about the classic sci-fi meditation on living life to the fullest, Blade Runner. We discuss the film's deeper philosophical intentions and all of the reasons why it's one of Chris's top five movies ever. Travis, do you dream of Electric Sheep? Um, I do dream of electric llamas, but those are pretty similar, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's in the same ballpark. That's good enough. Man, I, I feel so stupid. I'm, I was talking with Lauren about this movie because we watched it together, my wife. Um, and she really likes that book. And she was, she, she said the name of it. And I was like, I was like, wait, what? Like it, it, the title to me is so obvious now. Like you dream of sheep when you sleep, electric sheep. But like, I don't know why I always thought it was. I just thought it was electric sleep. Like oh. I didn't know the title of the book really. I just thought like electric sleep was part of it. And I always associated that with Blade Runner. And today looking at the title of it, I was like, oh my God, I feel so stupid. <laughs> that is one of those things that you just kind of like half hear. I feel like we yeah. all, it's, it's like those mistaken song lyrics, right? Right. Um, where it's like you sing the wrong lyrics for half of your life. And then you realize yeah. at some point like, oh, that's not what they were saying like oh that makes no sense at all yeah i used to think this song was like do the funky lady and that there was just some dance that you would do that was called the funky lady that was popular in the 60s i had no idea that the song was dude looks like a lady oh yeah and for me the macarena i thought it was macaroni (laughs) and i was doing the macaroni the whole time (laughs) i'm sure you were (laughs) Uh, also Blade Runner. I'm excited about this one. Why, why are you so excited about this? I don't understand. This is uh, a top five movie for me, like legit top five, not top yeah. five of the movies I've watched since July of 2022. But <laughs> <laughs> in my lifetime, Blade Runner is top five for me. Yeah, I, I know this about you. And I, you know, I'd only seen this movie once and I can't even actually, you know what I can, I can look up when I watch this movie. That's the beauty of my. Uh, logging every movie I've watched for several years now. Let's see. When did I watch Blade Runner? Uh, June 24th, 2014. So about nine years ago, I watched it for the first time. And honestly, didn't really remember it that way. I mean, I, I guess I remember like what it looked like and the, the mood and feel of it, but didn't really remember the story at all. Uh, so it was really fun to come back and revisit it, especially knowing how much you like it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, this is one that you had heard about f- 
for a while, I'm assuming, before 2014. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, it's got a reputation. Yeah. What uh, what made you sit down and watch it in 2014? Do you remember? Um, Probably you. Um, <laughs> and the, I, I assumed my wife had read the book and, like, it was on her mind, probably. I assume that's what happened. I don't know for sure. Um, but it was just the situation. In 2014, I would have been in Iowa. Uh, I think you would have been gone at that point. Yeah, I think I had just moved. You said June 2014? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I moved to Austin in April or May. Okay, so at this point in my life, I'm I'm working at a small-town Iowa newspaper, wishing I could be anywhere else uh, like Chris. <laughs> and I, gosh, thinking, thinking of watching this movie, I feel like the movies I watched in this period of my life are a bit of a wash like I was in a maybe not so great place at this point in my life. And I do have some specific memories of movies that were nice, but uh, I feel like a, a lot of the movies I watched, I weren't really, I wasn't really engaged with. So I'm assuming this fell into that camp. <laughs> that makes sense. I remember some of those newspaper stories and yeah. how, uh, you know, nice, but frustrating it was. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> being in a small Iowa town, like, you're just dealing with old honorary people for the most part who are annoyed at everything you write. Um, and it's just a grinding hall to get people to talk about anything. If you're like covering like local politics or whatever, but on top of that, you know, just maybe wasn't at a good spot in general myself. So a lot of like growing up to do. Um, but regard, it, 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 I, I just feel like movies I watched in this period, like I wish I could have connected with Blade Runner then. But, you know, viewing this movie now, it almost seems like I wouldn't have properly connected with it unless I had gone through that and been able to look at life through like a new set of eyes, you know. It's definitely a movie I think that ages with you. Yeah, totally. It, it, like I feel like there's some movies that I watch and I have the same reaction to them that I had when I saw them when I was like a kid or a teenager or college mm-hmm. or in my twenties or now in my thirties. And then there's others that as I get older, there's just different facets and aspects and layers, especially to the characters yeah. that I can connect with in ways. And it's almost like when I first watched this, which was in college, our professor, I believe showed us clips of the theatrical version that has the voiceovers and then had us watch the director's cut. And I don't even think the final cut existed yet. And it was in the basement room of this English building and on just like a, a little 32 inch TV. So we didn't get to watch this in like a theater. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're just kind of like a high school teacher wanting to sleep during class kind of day and putting out a movie experience but i just remember kind of being in the front row and watching this thing and being completely (laughs) completely blown away (laughs) by the majesty of it the shots just the whole aesthetic of it was unlike anything I'd ever watched up until that point in my life. I didn't know movies yeah. could look like this. So I think that was what uh, why it appealed to me so much in the first place was just the general vibe of it all. 
and a lot of the deeper human and human condition aspects I appreciated on a philosophical level, but I maybe didn't connect with on an emotional level. But over the years, especially as I've had my own existential crises and, you know, you awaken to the fact that you will die and what does it mean to die? All of that now hits on uh, such a deeper level than it did the first Mm. dozen times I watched this movie uh, in my 20s that... I don't know. I love that it's one of those films that kind of lives with me. Yeah, that's beautiful. I kind of feel that way about uh, Eyes Wide Shut. It's a movie that when I first saw it, like it's such a bizarre experience and doesn't feel like any other movie, like even any other Stanley Kubrick movie. It exists in this like strange ghostly vacuum and it's really hard to read and like work yourself into. Uh, But as I've rewatched it, I've just been kind of, blown away by how it feels in step with my life and how I've become how I've come to find more out of my relationship with my wife but also like be a better person for that relationship and to foster something bigger than myself there's it's just so interesting how movies can move at that pace with us um I really like hearing that also you you noted in that that is there a director's cut of this where there is no narration Wait, tell me you didn't watch the narration version. I, I did. Whoa, Travis, wait, what? <laughs> I didn't even know there was more than one version. Oh, my God. Wait. You essentially didn't watch the movie then. What do you What do you mean by that? Oh, wow. The theatrical version that has the narrator is, like, essentially the most outdated version of the film and is considered, like, the worst version of the film. Interesting. Um, There's a director's cut that came out eventually and then a final cut that came out. It's like Apocalypse Now. Yeah, except, well, the director's cut or the theatrical of Apocalypse Now is just like still a masterpiece. Yeah. (laughs) There's a huge tonal shift and difference in just the shots. Uh, There's different like key scenes that are put into it really like, okay. you didn't get you didn't get the unicorn scene did you uh you mean at the very end no no there's oh, a unicorn yeah, in yeah, the yeah. movie you know what i read that in your piece um and i was like huh, i didn't really remember that <laughs> yeah the end like your ending had them in a car right uh yes yeah that's not that's gone that's not in the movie at all interesting yeah. So the director's the final cut now is considered the like primary version of the film. And even the okay. director's cut which came out in 1992 uh superseded the theatrical for such a long time. Okay. Uh but again to my question, there's no narration in the new ones? No. It, yeah, it got cut. It was something that I like initially I guess they didn't <laughs> want. Uh, that's the story. The story goes that they didn't want it, but the studio was like, well, it's Harrison Ford. You need to have his like voice. And yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. lets people connect. But yeah, that, that got cut immediately. I knew Harrison Ford hated doing that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I kind of liked it because one of the things I loved most about this movie is it reminded me of a film noir. I mean, it's, it is a film noir. That's why it reminded me of, <laughs> it reminded yeah. me of old film noirs. Um, and I, I always kind of like that edition of, 
the monotonous narration. Like it, it gives the genre like a kind of cartoonish feel. Like, like it feels very like, like you're reading like a, a ratty old book or something, you know, and just yeah. like getting this like dumb exposition. Uh, but I always like that about it, but whatever. I, I mean, it's not super essential in this movie, I guess. Yeah. That's funny. Oh, I didn't even think to ask about that before. I'm a Blade Runner noob. I need I need guidance. Yeah, that's funny. I think I watched it on Amazon. I don't know where I just rented it somewhere. Oh my good. I like I don't need it's surprising to me that the theatrical version is even available to rent and is it just a, a bonus <laughs> copy that's available in the the Blu-ray. Oh man. I I do wish I had been able to buy this on four K before watching it, but I just didn't get around to it in time. Okay, this is oh, well. You, this is you'll be interesting. Th- th- it's I guess it provides for an interesting episode. Like maybe some people have only seen the version I've seen, so you can provide some context. Yeah, I'm sure there's maybe a few of you out there. I mean, if if it's rentable on Amazon as only this version, like a lot of people probably will watch it that way. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Like, I shame on Amazon. <laughs> but who? I mean, I'm clicking Amazon here. I'm, I'm looking at all the other here. You know, click Voodoo, click YouTube. I don't know if oh. any of them are going to be different. Yeah, it, there's Blade Runner and then Blade Runner the director's cut and Blade Runner the final cut. They're listed oh. as different. Uh, yeah, different items. The final cut. Oh, that's funny. I mean, yeah, there's definitely people that'll just look up like I've heard great things about Blade Runner and then just go watch the theatrical. <laughs> I'm somebody who knows a lot about movies and I didn't even know about all this. <laughs> well, this is your education then on Blade yeah. Runner having multiple prints. Um, all right. I look forward to this. I, th- that it was interesting because I obviously I read you through your piece on Blade Runner on the website and you mentioned the unicorn thing. And I, in that moment, I was like, oh, wow, like that is pretty profound insight. And I kind of had a moment where I felt a little dumb. I was like, huh, I wonder how like I didn't connect those dots. <laughs> Yeah, because the scene just wasn't <laughs> in your version. Apparently, what happened was that Ridley Scott had it in the initial version, and studio executives were like, this makes no sense. Like, it looks different. It's wow. weird. Get rid of it. And he was like, but you kind of need it. And they're like, no, get rid of it. So he got rid of it. And then as soon as he was able to do the director's cut, the first wow. thing he did was put it back in. That is the stupidest no- studio note I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> voiceover, because the film noir, like, put in the voiceover and then yeah. get rid of the unicorn. I mean, yeah, that's so stupid. More exposition <laughs> and less. I don't know. Yeah, that makes the movie. You put in, ostensibly, you put in narration for exposition, and then they want to get rid of the unicorn scene, which provides a key answer to something that happens later in the movie. Yeah. It's one of the like main points of evidence that we have that Deckard is a replicant. And I'm interested to talk about that, actually. So why don't we get into a little bit of like what your theory is on that and like why it holds water. And then I want to dig into it a little bit. Okay. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, 
The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So, and it was something that Ridley Scott had in mind from the beginning. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Deckard is not a replicant at all. It's not even hinted. Mm -hmm. It's confirmed that he's taken the Voight-Kampf test and passed it. Uh, Very much a human. But in the movie, it was something that Ridley Scott was adamant about including and apparently nobody else liked the idea (laughs) and the the people that wrote the screenplay hampton fancher and david peoples also wrote it with deckard in mind as a human and harrison ford said that he mostly played the character as human but ridley scott was saying no 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 (laughs) Uh, replicant, 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 but you know, never for a long time confirmed that in uh, necessarily interviews or things, but then finally talked about it a little more explicitly over the years. Um, I think it became most like it was a pet theory that people had after the 82 release, but once the director's cut came out in 1992. And the unicorn scene was there. A lot more people started going like, hey, is he supposed to be a replicant? Yeah, right. And then by the time that we got to the final cut, it was made maybe even a little more explicit. Because Um, he sees a unicorn like in a vision, right? Yeah. So what happens is that you have the scene where he's talking to Rachel and he starts telling her the memory she's had right when she's a kid and there's a spider outside of her window and it has these babies and the babies eat her or when she was a kid playing with her brother and the weird doctor story that Mm -hmm. he tells um so he knows these things because he's read her file and it includes the transcript of her memories or the memories that were implanted Uh, Or, you know, Tyrell told him. Somehow he had the knowledge, but her reaction confirms that, yes, he knew these stories. There's a point where he's playing on his piano and he's kind of like hitting the keys and he's a little drunk and he's staring. I think it's after the fight with Leon. Mm -hmm. And as he's kind of looking, you see this vision of a unicorn running through the woods and then it cuts back and he's not asleep he's still kind of awake but he's still seeing this vision of this unicorn and there's no insight into it whatsoever nobody ever mentions it again it never comes up again until the very end where he kicks the little uh origami unicorn and picks it up and this was a subplot that had been going on uh starting with when Brian asked Deckard to come into the office and first assigned him this case of catching the replicants that were loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, Deckard saying, I'm retired. I don't want to do this. And we see Gaff make a little chicken, origami chicken. Yeah. So it shows that Gaff is in some ways making these origami figures as a response to Deckard's mood yeah. or emotional state. So we see the chicken, and then later, after he meets Rachel, we see the little tinfoil guy with a boner, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which shows that Gaff obviously can tell that Deckard is into Rachel. 
Uh, and then the last one we get is the unicorn. And I think the initial implication of the unicorn, especially in the first version, the version that you watched, was simply that Rachel's a unicorn, since we're told at the end that she has no termination date. Right. And it's just kind of like, see, she's a one of a kind. Like, great, we're going to be able to go and have a life together. <laughs> Uh, but in the second version that now includes the unicorn scene, it suddenly has a lot more relevance to Deckard himself, as it seems to be the same thing that we saw happen with Deckard and Rachel, where he knew her what her memories were or what she was thinking of. It seems right. Gaff knows what Deckard's thinking. And if the implication was that's because Rachel was a replicant, that means the implication here is that that's because Deckard's a replicant. Yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. I like that a lot. And it, it definitely does. I guess the, the main and the way in which this opens up the discussion to me is like, I feel like there are two camps here. There are people who are going to be obsessed with like, is he or is he not a replicant? And just answering this basic like narrative question about like the world and who this person is. And then... I, I feel like there's maybe just a parallel or tangential discussion that it's just so funny that like I don't really think about that at all. Like to me, I'm suddenly more fascinated by like what's the message here? Like what is being conveyed by leaving this unicorn and what ideas are trying to be transmitted from the artist behind the camera to the person watching the movie? Like obviously there is a question. There is a yes or no answer to like is this guy a unicorn? But like on another level, does it matter if, oh, an, an, uh, sorry, not a unicorn, a replicant. <laughs> he is a unicorn, kind of. Um, um, it, it's more of like, how do we look at him? You know, does it matter if he's a replicant at all? Um, is it more about how we viewed him the entire movie? And, and now at the end of the movie, like, does it change how we've looked at him? It's um, it's just like an interesting little twist to put at the end of the movie that it doesn't, you know, this guy, he could have purely made the unicorn as a nod to Rachel to say like, she's kind of a unicorn in this world. Um, but Harrison Ford sees that and knows this memory he has of the unicorn and could draw a completely different interpretation from it. And this guy who left the unicorn, is, is it Gaff? Yeah, Gaff. Yeah. He, he might have no idea about this memory and we're just assuming that he knows about the memory. And, you know, we could sit here all day and argue like whether or not he does know about the memory memory. And if he does, like, what does it mean? But at the end of the day, I feel like it, it becomes this like tiny glimpse into Deckard's life where like he has this moment of like, oh, does Gaff know or not? Does he know something I don't? And Deckard will n maybe never find out the truth. And it leaves them with this existential question of like, who truly am I? Uh, which then plays into the movie's entire ideology, which is, does it matter who you are? <laughs> does it matter if you're a replicant or not? Like you're still human. You now see these replicants as human. So you're just, it, it just becomes a way of like defining yourself and seeing yourself in this world and refusing to put a label on yourself essentially and just define who you are on your own. Yeah, there's something pretty progressive about this movie in terms of not defining humanity so explicitly. 
mm-hmm. as this thing and leaving it open to the fact that are you a person no matter how you came to be you know whether you were born naturally or you're created by Tyrell the Tyrell Corporation as this uh, you know bio bioengineered humanoid <laughs> that's the phrasing uh, you're still somebody that has experiences and has feelings and whether your memories are real or not the things that you then experience moving forward and the memories you have from that are incredibly real and the same way that Deckard realizes that replicants are people he can then apply that to himself and say whether I am a replicant or not it doesn't matter I'm still me and the same journey that he goes on is the same journey that the viewer then has to go on right where we start by thinking oh roy's just this machine right or a creation and then at the end you're like oh no that's (laughs) some of the most beautiful shit i've ever heard somebody say (laughs) and then you're supposed to have that same feeling with Deckard, this person who had been the audience surrogate, who had been the human, in quotes, facing off against the replicants, was a replicant the entire time? Does that change how you feel about him? Does that change the connection that you have for him? Are you no longer rooting for him? It's such a challenge to somebody's own ideology and their sense of humanity that relates to a lot of the... uh, racism and criticism and judgment that we see people cast to this day when it comes to race uh gender sexuality uh, politics and it's like if you just saw the person and you took out all the labeling that you attempt to do they're a person right you can connect with them you can be comfortable with them and yet the moment that you start trying to label them as something different or as something that you're not comfortable with that can change an entire dynamic when at the end of the day, we're all just humans. Yeah. It's uh, it kind of reveals someone who thinks that way as, I mean, why else would you be so obsessed with like defining someone else? If only because like you weren't comfortable with yourself and your place in the world and how you fit into it. And you see all of these disparate forces that aren't like yourself as antagonistic and threats to what you've been told you are your whole life uh it it again i absolutely love film noirs it's one of my favorite genres and to me this kind of plays into the whole aesthetic that was born from that genre you know Mm -hmm. um just living in this social despair (laughs) there's this temptation of nihilism um there's pervading loneliness uh, and, and all of that produces this inner struggle of good and evil that kind of you feel pressure to take one side or the other to be part of this group or that group to either be part of something or to be lonely. It's it's all very it's all just an ever present part of this aesthetic of the genre. And it's cool to see Blade Runner tooling with that and a much more like explicitly philosophical way. (laughs) Like it's just such a philosophical movie, like constantly asking those questions and presenting these people, giving these big monologues and 
and wondering about life and the point of life and like, are you really living? <laughs> it's it's all done in a way that I, I really like. I, I like the way it approaches the whole film noir aesthetic and and it, it really does just give it like a new age feel. Like, it, it, apart from the neon glow and the rain and the futuristic world, like it, it's cool that it, it just feels like it's kind of elevating all of those ideas and questions that have always been around with the genre. Yeah, it's I, there are a few movies that I feel like cap out or are kind of the uh, top of the mountain or culmination of a, a genre. Uh, like, for example, in the late 80s and throughout the 90s and early part of the aughts, we had a lot of these historical epics. Uh, Dances with Wolves, Last of the Mohicans, The Patriots, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Braveheart, Braveheart, right around then. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other ones? There's the Legends of the Falls. Legends of the Falls. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. Uh, all of these historical epics that were mixing like action, romance, and I feel like it peaked initially with Gladiator as kind of this we understand the aesthetic we're going to streamline it we're going to elevate it but then scott movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh yeah that's right and then uh gangs of new york to me always kind of felt like the nobody's going to top this at this point yeah like i think i gladiator is a more entertaining movie overall or maybe a more successful movie but there's something about Gangs of New York in terms of its scope, its scale, the performances, the... Uh, it's a Scorsese movie. Yeah, it's a Scorsese. Yeah. The f- it's just, it's unbeatable <laughs> to me in terms yeah. of that genre. And we didn't really get anything after that in terms of these historical epic films that had the same kind of tone and vibe as those 80s, right. 90s, early aughts. And Blade Runner is that kind of culmination of film noir to me. To where, I mean, the genre had been around for a long time at that point. And of course, we would go on to get some of the Coen brothers, like new age noir movies. Yeah. But there's just something about how Blade Runner, I don't know, leans into that, the historical aspects of the the detective in the trench coats. Yeah. but turns it into a little more action, the sci-fi elements, and then the overall like cinematography of the film and the philosophical aspects that then come in. How do you, how do you compete with that? <laughs> I kind of know what you mean. I mean, certainly there have been other film noir babies <laughs> over the years. You know, like Nightcrawler kind of does it. Drive kind of does it. Kiss Kiss Bane Bane it probably is maybe the most the heaviest one to do it but Blade Runner is a little different just in the sense that it really feels it feels like a film noir like it doesn't necessarily even though it's got like the the neon glow and it's in a futuristic world it still feels like it adheres to the film noir formula again with that narration like that's all I could think while listening to like oh this movie's like trying to be a film noir where a lot of something like Drive like it's cooler than a film noir, you know? <laughs> yeah. It kind of like looks da- like film noir. Like that was cool when they did that, but like, look at this. Uh, Blade Runner, like it does feel that way. It, it feels kind of small 
in that way. Like, it's about bigger issues. It's about <laughs> the biggest state in the world, like your life <laughs> and how to live it. But it's also contained. It's just about the small group of people and this tiny community's search for something, like something bigger than themselves. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another cool thing about this movie, um, I'm trying to bring up the exact quote here. And somehow when I Google search Film Colossus Blade Runner, it did not come up. <laughs> That's uh, pretty sad. I know. Our letterbox post comes up, but <laughs> the article itself. Uh, okay. Here we go. So one cool thing is that um, Rucker Hauer actually ad-libbed a little bit in the Roy Batty final speech. Mm-hmm. So the script version of it was, I've seen things, of course, uh, seen things you little people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, bright as magnesium. I rode on the back decks of a blinker and watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gates. All those moments, they'll be gone. That's the initial version. Hmm. So then Rucker Hauer's kind of ad lib changes were quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it is to be a slave. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gates. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. He ad libbed that? Yeah. <sighs> Crazy, right? I mean, I knew I liked Rucker Hauer before, but shit. This guy's right? got insight. Like, yeah. that's somebody who's really living that character to think of something like that. Yeah, just to add in those... I mean, and it's so... It's not a big difference. Like, all those moments, they'll be gone versus all those moments will be lost in time. But time is such a repeated element yeah. throughout the movie. It's It's certainly a motif. It's a theme. So to bring it back with being lost in time and then adding in the tears in the rain. Ugh, man, that, that moment. I mean, so much about this, so much of this movie is about living your life and the, um, that the idea that like time is ticking, that you have to like live it now, you know? Yeah. And obviously that applies to Deckard who isn't really doing that, who is very listless, um, is kind of drinking his life away, who doesn't have any real connections, if anybody, who is lonely, versus someone like, what's Rucker Hauer's name? Uh, Roy Batty. Roy. Um, like, thinking of someone giving that speech, <laughs> like, that is somebody who is who's in it, you know, who is so aware, who knows that only a four, if you knew you only had four years to live, you'd make the most of it. You'd become who you're supposed to be. You would be so everything you said would come from a place of like learnedness and and thought and introspection, and would represent an aspect of yourself and how you want to live. Like it, it's just so interesting to see a character like that and for him to give that speech to Deckard is just kind of like shaking him awake. Like look, like look at me. Look at somebody who fully utilize the few years they have in this earth you need to do this like that's 
I mean, I, I guess I had realized all this before, but like now in this moment, I'm realizing like that's what this whole movie is. It's kind of like a build to that moment. Yeah, one thousand percent. It's it's all about getting to that moment of wow. waking Deckard up to you have this cool thing where the movie starts with hearing that you know essentially Roy and Pris are on the run, right? And then it ends with Deckard and Rachel on the run. So in some ways, he's become like Roy, hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. And the fact that you have them in conflict for so long, and it's like, we know that Roy, probably if he had caught Deckard earlier, might have actually killed him. But there's also part of him that is clearly toying with Deckard. Mm-hmm. And even though he's angry with him about what happened to Pris, he knew that Pris didn't have long to live. He knows he doesn't have long to live. And there's that choice that he makes in that final moment when Deckard's hanging off the building and so scared of him that instead of taking someone else's life, he ends up cherishing Deckard and saving him and imparting this last bit of knowledge and information. He can like live on through him basically. Yeah, there's something so it gives me goosebumps even thinking about it and talking about it. I and I love that change that he makes because when Roy says in the initial script, I've seen things, seen things you little people wouldn't believe, the little people is still so condescending. Right. And yeah. negative. That's what I that's what I thought when you read it. I was like, that doesn't seem like the way I think of the end of this movie. No, and that's the thing with the change that you know maybe the writers made the change maybe it was Rucker Howard made the change maybe Scott told him to cut the line whoever decided to take that out and just say I've seen things you people wouldn't believe yeah it's such a great call because in that moment Roy isn't necessarily bitter he's the bigger person yeah and there's something really profound about that and i love that it ties back to the fact that there was so much emphasis on the experience or the memory the fact that these replicants were created and essentially given in quotes a personality yeah which is one of the reasons why we see deckard kind of being dismissive of rachel because he views her as something that was created yeah but in this final encounter with roy it's not the memories that he was implanted with or if he was implanted with any at all that he's talking about here. It's the things that he's actually done, the things that he's actually experienced mm-hmm. that define him and make him a person and who right. he is. And I think that's such a profound thing too because that's one of the, I think, awakening moments of it doesn't matter how any of these people got started it matters the things that they've experienced and learned and the the humanity that they show because of that to experience is the thing that proves we're alive yeah and to process that reflect on that that's really powerful yeah especially thinking about the unicorn scene now you know when when harrison ford holds up harrison ford when deckard holds up that unicorn and it makes him think of this dream sequence he has with the unicorn it challenges him to define it essentially like do do you now think of this as an implanted memory 
or do you see this as motivation to like go out and create experiences or maybe do you look you don't even view it as a you don't even view it as an implant anymore like this image of the unicorn belongs to you and however it motivates you and drives you and defines you that's totally up to you it doesn't matter that like someone else picked it for you it's now yours you know yeah you can make of it what you will all right i uh <laughs> i think this is all making me realize that i need to watch the final cut of blade runner <laughs> like this week uh yeah. especially since we i believe we're talking about blade runner 2049 on the next episode yeah i feel like because look i really enjoyed blade runner but i i kind of i had the same reaction to it that i did last time even though i don't remember <laughs> very much of it last time um where i was like all right i like it like i like all the ideas but like it's not hitting in the way i need a movie to everything we're talking about like that's my jam and it sounds like the final cut goes into all that a little bit more yeah it's it's not like it's dramatically different in terms right. of like there's a five minute sequence that's missing it's just there's something in the the tone of it the vibe right. of it the meditation of it like when that's you don't more have of that, what i want anyway <laughs> yeah when you don't have that voiceover coming in and you just have the silence of the scenes yeah as much as you can try to ignore the voiceover and just be like well the shot's nice it's just a different state of being when you watch mm. the movie okay i like that um my absolute favorite thing in this movie and it it revs me up every single time is in the final kind of chase sequence there's this great i've never i don't think i've ever seen a movie another movie do it i'm sure there is an example of it but rucker howard or roy ends up kind of turning a little feral right Mm -hmm. uh he sends deckard running off and then he howls and when he howls the i guess the music of the scene or the score of the scene ends up having this kind of wailing howl sound put into it so you hear roy be like oh yeah and then you hear in the score like a wow yeah and there's a a rhythm to it like as the chase is happening that howl keeps coming back in yeah that's so cool to me to yeah. have this <laughs> dynamic between the what the cow the sound the character made and the way in which the score then incorporates that and that energy and the vibe of it i mean i know in horror movies you have the of course like the creepy atmosphere that fits it or romance movies you have the dramatic uplifting music that accompanies you know the first kiss and the breakthrough of this couple but there's just something different about the way that it's used in this moment as kind of a call and response that i don't think i've ever noticed uh the score reacting to a movie in quite the same way rather than just being overlaid to what's happening yeah i like that i mean there is maybe that's this is inherent with any movie that has such a heavy focus on eyes but there does seem to be a bit of a relationship between like the movie format and the people watching the movie and the characters like the movie opening with the eye like the first thing i think is a sort of like big brother aesthetic or something you know like like that we're watching these people the whole time 
Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it has more meaning than that. But I, I do think that's kind of part of the movie. And, you know, with looking in people's eyes and the eyes telling you whether or not they're replicants and, and Harrison Ford using his machine, it, it, like the way we evaluate people, the way we define people, um, it, it all we see all the characters doing it within the movie, but then like it becomes a task for us as well, especially if this question of at the end, Oh, is Deckard a replicant? And like, how does that change how I viewed him the entire movie and how, how I separate him from people? And like, do I actually separate him at all? It becomes a very uh, inclusive movie in that way. So, I mean, that's not surprising to me that they would be conscious enough to really link up with the, link up what the characters are doing with like the movie experience, you know? Yeah. It's just, I think it's one of those things that I appreciate about this movie so much is that it feels fresh to me 40 Mm. years from its release. Yeah. (sighs) I would agree. It's, it's, I mean, it's got the Ridley's got energy. Like he's still making movies today and his movies still kind of feel like this. So yeah, it feels modern in that way. Yeah. I'm, always impressed by it especially this was the first time that i watched it in like two years three mm-hmm. years i think the last time i saw it was in theater at the alamo draft house which cool. i've seen in theaters now like four or five times nice. um but this is the longest i've gone since watching it the first time when i was like 20 uh without watching it again it's usually like every year every other year kind of thing yeah. So going three years without seeing it, it was such a breath of fresh air again, especially with the amount of not so great movies that I've watched. <laughs> I don't lately. know what you're talking about. Yeah. And getting back into writing as much as we've been writing about films after a few years of covering mostly like really good classical things, mm-hmm. getting back to new releases, you just see so much stuff that you're like, why can't you be creative? Why can't you be inventive? Why can't you yeah. challenge me? And so getting back to Blade Runner and just, whew, it felt like the first time watching it all over again. And I was even more in love with it than before. Yeah. Yeah, I am excited to, I want to check out the final cut. I mean, I I was commenting earlier that I liked the narration just because I like that film noir format. But I will be interested to kind of ease into a movie that, is telling me less because the movie in general already kind of does that. Honestly, anytime there is narration in a movie, I completely space out (laughs) (laughs) half the time. I have to look to my wife and be like, wait, what did they just say? Like, I just won't listen. Like, I don't care. Um, And I, I like that element of this movie that there are just a lot of, even though there is again, narration, like it's telling me stuff that I don't think is that important and it's not necessarily getting into the thematic and philosophical meat of the film. And I think that's where this movie thrives is that it's not exactly providing answers there. Like it's asking a lot of questions. It's posing a lot of ideas, but it's not telling you what the answer is necessarily. It's not even pointing in a direction. It's just kind of it's it's leaving it like an open road and like presenting it to the characters and which they would go which presents then to the viewer like which way would you go um i I like that aspect of this movie that it's just it's just this world like it's just this big unknowable world filled of people doing different things that have built what it's become and and it doesn't feel the need to like make it 
an intricate world building kind of thing. Like that's always the stuff I'm maybe the least interested in is like all of the different little facets of a world. Uh, unless it's getting at something deeper and more meaningful, but half the time I don't feel like it is. Uh, I almost prefer a movie, don't do that, and leave things open-ended and just create this, like, crazy place where, like, things exist and you have to figure out how you feel about things and how you would choose to live. It's This movie does that very well. It does. There's something, I don't know. Uh, it's quiet, but it's loud. Yeah. It's thoughtful, right. but it's like not in your face with it. Yeah. I, there's something very drinkable about this movie without feeling overwhelmed by thematics. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I'm interested in. Like, I kind of just want to fall into a movie and be part of it. And I mean, we're sitting here talking about the philosophy of this movie and we've barely even like talked about the actual movie. We're, we mostly just have talked about like the final scene and, and like the bigger questions that have been presented to people. We haven't even gotten into like a lot happens in this movie, a lot of like nitty gritty details and a lot of different character dynamics. Um, but the movie at the end of the day is just about those big overwhelming questions it's asking you. And it's cool when a movie can do that to you that after you're done watching it, you're kind of just stuck with it and basking in it and thinking about how it affected you. Yeah. And you're right. There is so much more to kind of get into all the eye stuff. The, that you were talking about is very like fascinating from a motif perspective. You could spend an entire episode just talking about the, the usage of eyes in this movie. Mm. And I think it's cool that you do get the big brother elements. As you're saying, the fact that, Roy essentially, well, he does kill Tyrell, but he kills Tyrell by crushing his, like, poking out his eyes and crushing his skull. Hmm. The fact that he ends up essentially killing God <laughs> yeah, is such a, like, to him, is such a strong statement about being annoyed about the fact that we die. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there's like commentary there. There's commentary with the Orwellian aspects of it all and all the sci-fi implications and even the usage of animals in this movie. I think that was one of the things that I never really focused on all that much. Mm. I haven't read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Oh, okay. So I never really knew the context of what was different or where the electric sheep actually <laughs> why they were part of it. I always figured the animals being so present in this movie uh, was a nod to that book, but I never knew why. And it didn't seem necessarily that it was that important of a, like it wasn't going to unlock a whole new hidden layer of the right. movie to understand, you know, the owl and the snake and the unicorn and mm -hmm. uh, all of that. But I dove into it a little bit more in writing the piece uh, especially why is the book called that? And it's funny because the whole motivation that Deckard has in the book is that he wants to buy a real sheep. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, that's a status emblem in the novel world is that you buy an animal and have a real animal, not just an electric replicant version of the animal. Right. Uh, so the same way that Deckard wants to buy a sheep, it's essentially asking you know, do 
replicants have these dreams of wanting more? Do they have these things that they want just because they want them? There's such a, a human aspect to that. Mm. Um, so it was nice to kind of get an answer <laughs> to that and have a little bit more of an idea of why the animals <laughs> factor in so much to this movie. Yeah, I was thinking about that the whole time, and I was like, I bet Chris wrote about this and will help me make sense of it. <laughs> a little bit. It's just like a a nod in the same way that, like, you know, can you tell the difference between the animals? And I don't think the the movie leans into it quite as much as the, the book does, but you can start to make some of the connections between there and see some of the, the influence. Yeah. And then did the title Blade Runner is actually has, like, a very funny history because that's also a phrase that you're kind of like where did this come from Mm -hmm. uh how did they come up with blade runner and it actually wasn't for this movie at all because it's not in do androids dream of electric sheep they're not called blade runners in that movie or in that book and they're not called replicants it's just androids and i think hitmen or mercenaries or assassins something like just a traditional name um but there was a science fiction novel in 1974 called the blade runner Mm -hmm. by this guy alan e norse and it's a dystopian sci-fi uh book about overpopulation and the government's denying medical care unless you're sterilized so if you don't want to be sterile and you need medical coverage or help you have to go to these underground doctors and there's a whole network of underground supplies and the people that make those supply drops are called blade runners because they're literally running scalpels between (laughs) like medical Mm. centers or doctors down there so that was a story that existed and it got optioned for a movie and the script got written by William S. Burroughs, who is this famous uh, sci-fi writer for the novel mm-hmm. Naked Lunch. And apparently his version of it was really batshit because he took the same idea but just blew it up. Like Burroughs was somebody that did a lot of drugs. <laughs> and <laughs> that was reflected in essentially every idea he ever had. Yeah. And so uh, there's this Goodreads description by this person, John, who says... Imagine that you have just finished reading Alan E. Norse's novel, The Blade Runner. As you were finishing it, you were just starting to come down with a bad case of the flu. You go immediately to bed and suffer through a night of bad sleep, punctuated by fever dreams, in which you were watching a very bizarre film adaptation of The Blade Runner. If these things were to happen to you, the experience might not be unlike reading William S. Burroughs' deranged adaptation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that never got made. <laughs> But when they were working on the untitled adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, Hampton Francher, or Fancher knew about, because a lot of people in the sci-fi screenwriter world had heard about Burroughs adapting Blade Runner. And because the script essentially died on the vine, uh, they just took the title. They just took it, yeah. Yeah, he went to Scott and was like, what do you think about Blade Runner? Scott said that's awesome and bought all the rights to the name. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Yeah, and that's how we got the name. So it was like an active choice to rename, you know, the the hunters to Blade Runners, and 
the replicants from just androids to something that was a little less dehumanizing because i think yeah. people have such preconceived notions of android that if you were just to call them that in this movie it would defeat the entire purpose of trying to get people to see them as people yeah cool wow yeah good insight Thanks. it's a it's a great it does have energy and it kind of thinking of deckard as a blade runner and the fact that he is kind of this Hunter. One thing I did think of actually that I thought was interesting is um, all of these replicants, because there is the question of whether Deckard is a replicant. A replicant is essentially a slave. It is forced to live a certain life they didn't want to live. And that's kind of what happens to Deckard at the beginning. Like he doesn't want to be hunting replicants anymore, but this police chief like makes him do it. Yeah. He's forcing him to partake in something which makes him a replicant in a sense, which again gets back to the question like, is he a replicant? Would, and the sub-question, like, does it matter if he's a replicant? Because he's just being treated like one here in this instance. And the whole journey is, he, you know, he, he goes out to kill replicants. Like, that is his job. That is his title, Blade Runner. It gives it, like, such energy. Um, but at the end of the day, like, is it we're left the question, like, is he hunting his own? Like, he doesn't even realize he's a replicant. And he's chasing down these people that he thinks are less than. But in the end, he might also be them. Like, in a sense, he's metaphorically hunting himself. You know, he's he's going after this image of a life that he's been told is less than, but really, like, this could be your life. And maybe you need to redefine the way you look at this life, you know? Yeah, it does feel almost symbolic for, like, his journey with self-loathing yeah. and self-identity that by killing the various replicants it's essentially keeping himself in check and stamping out the attempted humanity that wants to rise up in him. Yeah. Um, but by the end, by not succeeding in killing Roy and having Roy actually challenge him, it's almost like that part of him that wants to recognize his own humanity finally wins out. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, so you get the whole symbolic layer to everything, too, which is always one of my favorite things. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else? Any other scenes? This is your moment, Chris. This is your movie. Is there any other scene you <laughs> want to talk about? Um, I did find it interesting. I've So I like 2049, but I've often thought it was a little annoying as a Blade Runner sequel in some ways. Uh-huh. Uh, but one thing that did surprise me, because there's a whole... Have you you've seen 2049 before? Right? I have seen it. Yeah, there's a whole thing where they have Deckard confront Rachel, and mm-hmm. it's they're like, you two were made for each other. And I was never sure how I felt about that, but in the work print version of this movie... Uh, the original Blade Runner. Yes, there's a work print version <laughs> as well. <laughs> so it's the theatrical, the work print, the director's cut, and the final cut. Got it. Uh, it has these extra sequences at the very end when he and Rachel are in the car where essentially they're having a conversation and you can tell a huge tonal difference in the way that uh, Harrison Ford is acting as Deckard, he's suddenly talking a little more stylized and slowly the way that Rachel does. Mm -hmm. 
almost as if he's now acting as a replicant. And at one point she asks him about his wife and he's like, I thought I knew her. And Oof. there's kind of like a little smirk right there. And Rachel ends up saying, I think we were meant, or I think we were made for each other. And it's such a, a telling line. Yeah. <laughs> of yeah. Yeah. We were constructed to be together that it surprised me because I thought, the whole they were made for each other thing was kind of a retcon that was thrown in by uh, Villeneuve and uh-huh. crew. But it seems it was something that Scott had in mind from the get-go. Interesting, yeah. And that it was just a, a, a through line that Villeneuve picked up on and was expanding on. Okay. More good insight. I will have all that in mind when I watch 2049. Yeah. Uh, did you have a, a favorite moment, a favorite scene? Um, I just like the general. I, I, we'll talk about this in my rankings because I, and I, I have a feeling that I need to watch the final cut because of this. Like, there's a general. I like the mood and feel of this movie, but it feels a little patched together sometimes i guess i don't know how to properly describe like what was throwing me off about like the style of it i wish i could have eased into it a little bit more um but i just in general i would just say like the film noir feel of it and you know the foggy streets the dark alleyways the constant rain i the rain man that was what i liked it is not easy to shoot in the (laughs) rain (laughs) i i read Harrison Ford, like, it was what he hated most about it, like, shooting for 50 days in the rain. Like, yeah, that sounds like hell, but to pull something off like that, like, to create little washes of color to control light with constant rain happening, like, that is a gargantuan task, and it just shows how incredible Ridley Scott is as a visualist to construct a world that moves and flows effortlessly while rain's happening. So, uh, just, you know, the general look of the movie is, is so badass. It really, it really is. I especially, oh man, watching. I just got that uh, high def TV, like a 4K capable TV, oh, yeah. and even though I was just watching the Blu-ray, like just the upgrade in visuals on the opening scene throughout the movie. Ugh, oh yeah, it staggers me. It just visually staggers me. Yeah, love it. Um, what did that? make me think of i guess i'm not going to (laughs) remember i it was cool i was in la um like two years ago Uh and we actually were downtown and my friend liz was like oh do you want to see this building around the corner it's where they film blade runner i was like what and we went over and it was the building that they used for uh jf sebastian's apartment oh wow yeah so it was like that building and it was closed so I couldn't go in but just like looking through the window you could see you know that giant entryway and the staircase going up I was uh <laughs> like after a minute everybody else is like all right we can go and I'm still <laughs> just sitting there like no no I need I need more time here <laughs> I, I need to I'm, live in this yeah just outside this building but I need just a little more time time <laughs> Okay, so movie rankings. I guess this is a little uh, less suspenseful of Chris because I think I know where it ends up. Yeah, this is currently number one for me. So the, of... the, the movie rankings here are 
every movie we've watched since for me the list started at the beginning of 2022 chris july 2022 so every movie we've watched since then for chris it's number one right yeah out of 160 movies nice um it's number one above the the top five right now are black swan at five chunking express at four casino royale at three american psycho at two and blade runner at one okay um and my list now has 455 movies <laughs> uh, i only added one movie this week ex machina oh nice rewatch um, or first watch that is a rewatch uh didn't enjoy it the first time did not enjoy it the second time <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i don't like i don't like the end uh i also don't like the end so we're in agreement there um but for me, so Blade Runner, it, again, I think this is appropriate f- probably for this cut because I, I have a feeling like I'm on the cusp of liking this movie a lot more. And the final clip, I assume, will get me there. But I have it at 241. Okay. So just outside the top 50%. Yes. And above it is Decision to Leave, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, then below it is Source Code and, believe it or not, a film noir, The Big Heat. Um, Fritz Lane film noir. That's that's actually a pretty good. One. So these are all movies I really really like. Like I, we're in the great category. These are all movies I enjoy a lot. Um, it I just had the sense of like I it was more that I wanted to like Blade Runner more. Like I knew I liked it. I liked everything it was doing, but like I needed to like pull me in a little bit more, you know. Um, and I feel, I mean, even after talking about it just now, I probably could move it up, but I. I want to wait till I watch the final cut before to be sure of it, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I'd be curious because I don't remember the theatrical cut well enough to like, I know some of the scenes that were added, but I don't know enough about like the flow and editing of the theatrical Mm -hmm. to really be like, Oh yeah, this is going to make a huge difference in those moments for you. But I feel like, it will because there are some differences in pacing. They even like reshot a scene and used Harrison Ford's son oh, wow. as like the the stand-in for Harrison Ford. Uh, they uh, they kind of went big with it. Well, to reference what we talked about from the very beginning, like I, I feel like this movie, my opinion of it will change as I sit with it and as I rewatch it over the years. Like that was actually what I wrote down when I wrote a quick like review for it on letterboxd i was like i was like i really like it but like i feel like i need to read about it more and sit with it more and now you know talking about it with somebody more and i'll get it and i actually i'm already starting to get it a little bit more so i think next time i watch it it's just going to be i've grown into it a little bit more it it was that way with me and oh my god (laughs) uh the big lebowski the first time i watched it i was like you know that was pretty cool, but I don't think it's what everybody says it was. And my friend Justin was like, here. <laughs> Watching it is like hearing an inside joke for the first time, and you don't have the context. But once you rewatch it, you're in on the joke, and it's a completely different experience. And that's exactly what happened to me with Big Lebowski. Yeah. Um, I think it's like Blade Runner is one of those movies that also like age as well i'm gonna i'm curious if after you watch the final cut we need to do like a a mini (laughs) 
a mini follow-up episode i guess like the 2049 episode will be that in yeah. some ways but i'm excited okay. yeah let's plan to do that then cool and 2049 is the next episode a movie i do not remember liking at all <laughs> <laughs> but i'm excited to watch it now that i'm like i consider myself more of a blade runner fan now so like maybe that's the in i need yeah i'm curious because it is very Vil- Vilnovian. Yeah, uh, I, yep. Mm-hmm. And there's that sense of like space and emptiness that I really like that he does that you're not necessarily a fan of. I don't even know if that's how I would define it. Uh, I, I actually, I mean, I feel like I've, it, maybe it's the fact that everybody likes his movies, like his sci-fi movie. Like I actually like Vilnov. In general, I think he's all right, um, but I have not liked any of these big sci-fi movies that he's done, and these are the ones people have been attached to the most, so I've always felt a little detached and outside when it comes to it, and maybe never been able to like properly define like what <laughs> I find so frustrating about the way he approaches these movies. So I think that's going to be a big part of 2049 is me kind of having a reckoning with that and either a being able to put in the words what i don't like or b getting past something and being able to realize what everyone else is connecting to yeah i don't know um there's also little shorts that came out yeah i saw that i don't know if we need to watch those um (laughs) i mean if i have time like i'm not not interested but uh i wouldn't say it's like essential homework before the episode no, I remember watching one before the movie. I was so excited. I watched one. I was like, eh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's it. I don't need to. Okay. These were just okay. <laughs> Did Villeneuve even direct them? I don't know. I don't remember what like role he had in them. Okay. If he did, I don't know how much he cared about them. Yeah. They might've just been like studio creations. Yeah, just kind of little side things that they did or, like, test cases. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Well, look forward to that, everybody, <laughs> whether or not Travis hates this movie or not. Um, y- you're a fan of 2049, right? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, I'm not as big of a fan of it as I am Blade Runner, so there's still, like, an inherent... Uh, disappointment I think with the direction that they took the story okay but I still really enjoy the movie like on its own okay cool so not necessarily a fan of it as a Blade Runner sequel but a fan of it as a movie okay then that will be next time but for now we're gonna wrap up everybody everybody we're wrapping up okay all right you ready Chris I'm ready We're going to nail it this time. All right. Just in rhythm. And I want everyone to witness us nailing this. All right. It's it's the audio version of a high five. We keep missing. (laughs) Okay. Ready? Lights. Camera. See See ya. ya. I. I, So I'm able to time this up at the end of each episode. I'm going to let us know if we nailed it. We we did not. I think we might have. We were a second and a half off. Second and a half? Okay.